0: Good morning, everyone. Um, Welcome to the most important conversation here in Davos. um, Leading through crisis, what works and what doesn't. I'm Sarah Pantulian. I'm the chief executive at ODI. And I want to welcome, first of all, everyone who is gathered around this table in Davos, but also our online audience that I know is very numerous today. That is, is joining us through the ODI website. We are really, really grateful to MasterCard um, for hosting us in the Hub Culture in the Tech Lodge here. um, Fantastic space for these important conversations. But I'm really grateful to all of you around the table, you know, leaders and executives that have taken time out of crazy schedules here in Davos to join these conversations. We reached to each of you because you have some really unique perspectives to this challenge, and I think this is a challenge that could be more timely or important. I mean, we've seen over this past decade a number of really interconnected, quite unique um, you know, challenges, crises that have become the new normal yeah. very much. And citizens are looking to their leaders um, to make sense of this crisis, but they're struggling to get the leadership that they're hoping for. And so there is a growing sense that we need fresh approaches you know, to navigate through, uh, particularly against the backdrop of technological advancement. If you walk on the promenade, everything is like generative AI, right? So this strong leadership is needed now more than ever to tackle inequality, to tackle injustice if you don't want them to get entrenched. So last year at ODI, we launched Tandem. Tandem is our executive leadership development program because we want to try and help the leaders of the humanitarian and development sectors in particular um, to become the better leader of tomorrow. It's a program supported by USAID, and and really we seek to make it become the premier training ground for tomorrow's leaders. We know that the most pressing challenges that we're facing today globally from the climate emergency to the breakdown in peace and security uh, polarization racial injustice we can't address them in isolation we can't address them you know in isolated sectors which is why we have a, a cross section of you know industries represented around, around this table and through tandem we want to equip those who are on the front line of some of these not just challenges, you know, responding to humanitarian crisis, trying to help countries on their development trajectory, really have the skills, you know, to collaborate with others to bring about lasting change. So the conversation today, what are the traits of an effective leader? in this particular historical moment and for the uncertain future that we face. Um, You all have a wealth of experience across a range of industries, and we're gonna use your insights to continue to refine the Tandem program. I want to start by introducing some very special guest speakers that we have with us. Um, Farthest to my left, Mark Marlebran, Lord, Mark Mallow-Brown, President of the Open Society Foundations. Um, Next to Mark is Tirana Hassan, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. To my uh, immediate left, Amy Pope, very first woman, Director General of the International Organization for Migration. And to my right, I have Andrew Levy, the Chief Corporate of Government Affairs Officer at Accenture. Thank you so much for joining us to help provoke the conversation. But before we get stuck in the conversation, I'm going to go to Jeremy Hillman, who is the Mastercard Senior Vice President of External Engagement, who is going to kick us off with some opening remarks. We're really delighted to be partnering with you today for this event, Jeremy.
1: Thank you, Sarah. And it's fantastic to host you and ODI and your, your great team here, a lot of great friends and partners around the table. Uh, so look, we've had some amazing conversations here in this Mastercard uh, Tech Lodge uh, this week around... Cybersecurity around financial health around uh, uh, sustainability, but I think in some ways this conversation today is almost the the most important. The the idea of of showing leadership in these troubled times, and uh, uh, and so I'm really excited to sort of host this uh, right now. Uh, I think we probably all agree we need more and better leadership. We've not stayed ahead of some really challenging issues. We've not stayed ahead of uh misinformation we have not stayed ahead of some climate and sustainability issues uh before now and we've not stayed ahead of some really challenging geopolitical tensions that have caused a lot of uh you know misery and for lives and livelihoods so you know how do we you know how do we do that and where is the optimism to draw and i think there is optimism and i think we've seen a lot of it here this week in davos i remember being here a couple of years ago and all along the promenade it was crypto 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 here it's it's ai 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 and 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 i think it's it's an effort that we are that we see a new and transformative technology and there's a real willingness and 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 uh, to get ahead of this technology and 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 think about how we're building an inclusive digital ecosystem and 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 managing the risks and leveraging the opportunities of this new technology so uh you know i won't speak for long but i think uh, mastercard uh i think probably we you know we think that that we've really, to, to, to show leadership, we really have to work on our core, you know, take from our core expertise. So, you know, we work in important areas like small business and uh, data for social impact and financial inclusion. We believe that showing leadership is really utilizing the core skills and capacities we have. We're really proud to be celebrating 10 years of the Center for Inclusive Growth this year. And uh, uh, and so, you know, really happy to be hosting this conversation. And I'll pass it back to you, but thank you, Sarah.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Mastercard is really leading the way of bringing together different industries on the financial inclusion in particular. Let's get started to my feature speakers that we're calling them. So, as I said, this is a particular moment of geopolitical uncertainty. So what are the traits that leaders need to successfully steer organizations, companies, institutions? And, and, And tell us what lessons have you learned in your leadership journey? Mark, can I start with you?
2: you know I, I got to study at the feet of the Master, which was Kofi Annan. Um, and you know there were two traits I learned why well, I not sure I learned, but I observed in him. one was an extraordinary capacity for empathetic listening um an immediate understanding of where two highly opposed people or countries uh, there might be some, overlap of interests to press on but it came from listening 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 and beyond it a great willingness to uh, begin any conversation with how are your family how are you Uh, before turning to the business of the day so there was a humanity uh, which I think often gets lost. Uh, the, The second I think issue was to constantly, and I often use this phrase that I learned from him, which, um, you know, he claimed was an African aphorism. I sometimes wonder whether it really was or whether he just invented it and made it up. But you always used to say, you you can't change the wind, but you can bend the sail. Uh, And, you know, it's all about, you know, recognizing the realities you faced, but finding a way to navigate through them rather than exhausting yourself trying to bang up against the wind or a brick wall time after time. But as you navigate to remember that if you are a UN leader, not most notably Secretary General, but anyone, or in a human rights space or anything, you know, navigation mustn't mean betrayal of fundamental principles. So take that, and I will just very quickly to to today, and... You know, I think even he would be daunted by the many dimensions of the crisis today. And it makes me add one other fact to it, which is, you know, the need both to understand the sort of interconnectedness and multi-sectoral nature of what is happening, to recognize that apparently disparate events from a war in the Middle East to one in Ukraine to the hottest year on record... To, you know that all the, there are interlinkages between these. There are roots about within the breakdown of the current system of governance and economics in the world, and to recognise that, and to try and ride it in ways which allow new approaches uh, to emerge. But in doing so, to be very disciplined because it's so easy uh, to dissipate our energies over firefighting in a hundred different directions and to instead set your navigation point towards something you in your sector can achieve which will contribute to the resolution of that much bigger crisis of which we can only feel the immediate part we touch in our work seems to me critical just and finally just thank you for having set up this initiative i think it's great to have an executive training of this kind and Bravo
0: to you and USAID. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mark. And it's fantastic to be able to learn, you know, from all of you who have tried and have so much experience. And I can see that, you know, this uh, these incredible words of uh, of Kofi Annan will be used, you know, throughout the training and beyond. I will take them, you know, to help steer my own organization for a start. Adriana, Mark talked about the challenge, particularly for those who lead, you know, rights organizations and having to obviously... Um, make sure that we stay sort of truthful to your principles. What are your takeaway on leadership and uh, um, what you can sort of share from your journey?
3: Um, it's a it's a big question, uh, actually. I mean, one of the things that um, I think is making particularly the rights movement at the moment and to lead a right, human rights organization such a challenge um, is that the assault on human rights um is coming from multiple directions so yes we have big conflicts which are obviously polarizing the world and dominating the narrative um, and those sort of larger they are also you know the conflicts that we're seeing um, you know are polarizing conversations and community in business um, in everyone's organization in our communities in our schools and so that resonates throughout all organisations but at a whole like the fundamental idea of human rights is also being challenged and chipped away at so right now i mean the thing that we have to hold on to is being able to articulate our principles and at the same and being able to push back and that is actually and being able to find that mark alluded to it what is your north star and I think being able to articulate and define your North Star both as an organization so that you know what it is that we're rallying around. It is so easy in a fragmented world for everyone to know you know what is our what is our business or what is our organization do? But you can you risk in a polarized world having your workforce of whether it's 50 people or 650 people or a thousand fifty people turning up, everybody with a different idea of why they come to work and what our organization should do. And one of the things about articulating our principles um, and being able to articulate at North Star is you don't say it once, you say it every day. Um, And we need to make sure that in every decision and every conversation that we're having, we start those conversations is how is that leading us towards our purpose? Um, and so, you know, I think that if we can ground ourselves in our principle and our purpose, that's the first thing. And we need to constantly remind us of it. If I can talk on an issue of culture for a minute, because we cannot deliver on our mission unless we have a healthy internal cultures. And in such a polarized world, one of the things I think that we um, that we need to invest in now more than ever um, is making sure that we can have difficult conversations with respect that we know what the that we know that when we disagree, um, that there can be disagreement, but we also know that those disagreements don't just linger and hang. You know, at a point where people feel powerless, um, they're the people we work for, they're the people we work with. I think it's really important that we need to create space for the conversations that happen, for people to be able to voice their concerns. But then we have to take decisions. We have to be able to take decisions um, and articulate our rationales why. And as leaders, being able to articulate that rationale and our why, even if people disagree, you know, I see, you know, smart, um, intelligent colleagues and partners who, you know, they understand the why and people move on and they make better decisions. Um, And I want to say one thing is that I've seen leadership emerge across the sector and across my own organisation from all sorts of levels. And I think in the moment of challenge and crisis, that's another thing we need to do is not all leadership responsibility sits with those of us with, um, you know, um, wearing the big hat. Um, we need to continue to nurture the leadership that is throughout our organizations. Um, and lastly, um, I want to talk about one thing that's happening to the human rights movement. And I talked about this this regression. And that is a challenge. How do we lead when you feel you're always on the back foot, when you feel you're on the defensive? Um, and I think that is really a, a principle of being bold. If you want to hold the line uh, when it comes to protecting our principles, protecting human rights, uh, protecting open and free societies, we need to be talking about being bold and being principled and not being scared. We are currently in an environment, and this will be my last point, where there is a real um, danger that we can be silent so that we're not wrong. And I think that that might be the most dangerous thing that will compound the crises that we're in. And um, that happens at all levels. That's happening when we see governments sort of chipping away at civil society space. And actually I was just having a conversation about this and then we find our partners, our organisations being scared, saying if I stick my head about, would the government come after me? That happens in... um, discussions internally um well, if I say something you know will I will something happen to me that's happening we're seeing these examples everywhere and I think you can be principled speak out about it but I want to raise one other thing which I read in an article recently and it's really stuck with me um and it's pushing back against know your place aggression there is this concept where People who are speaking out in principled ways, people who are talking about the unpopular issues, um, people who are pushing back against repression um, are told, well, that's not your place. And if people and if other leaders in other organisations and if community is not prepared to stand up and say that's not acceptable, when somebody's stand uh, bold enough to stick their head above the pulpit, then I think we're um I think that that's the backsliding and we have an opportunity to push back.
0: Thank you very much uh, Tirana for that sobering reminder. Amy, there's so much wisdom already shared by Mark and, and Tirana. what resonates for you. You you knew the helm of IoM, but you have a long leadership journey to share with us as well.
4: So um one of the best pieces of advice I got um in a former job was you don't step off the curb until you know where you're going, uh, which I actually find quite useful, and particularly in an organization where we deal with a lot of humanitarian crisis, uh, which means it's effectively a variation on this theme of what's your North Star, um, but it's a little bit more specific than that. It is what are the what is the world that we are hoping to create And what are the key pieces of it? What does it look like concretely? And then even as we are responding in the midst of humanitarian crisis, all the actions that we are taking are grounded in the outcome that we are trying to see. So in the migration space, I think that's absolutely critical because at this moment in time, if you were to read the headlines, in any country, by the way, not just in the global north, but but all over the world, you would believe that migration is this terribly destructive force that must be stopped. When overwhelmingly, the evidence shows us that migration is this incredibly powerful force for development and for good. And ultimately, our job at the International Organization for Migration is to figure out how we enable the unlocking of the tremendous human potential that comes when people move. It's complicated by the fact that we do this in the context of humanitarian disaster. And we know that when people are moving quickly, when people are moving without plans or strategy, that there are challenges that communities face, whether it's the host community, whether it's the government or the migrants themselves. So it it's not to be so you know wear the rose colored glasses and think oh what's happening in Sudan is actually a good thing I mean what's happening in Sudan is is a is a very complicating challenging thing particularly for the people on the move but if you just stop for a moment and realize I was in Chad last week a number of Chadians half of the the people who migrated from Chad went to Sudan in search of better economic opportunities and better education. So if you stop for a moment and you think those people who are now coming back from Sudan into Chad very likely have additional economic skills um, and languages and education and other experiences. So how do we move from just responding to their immediate humanitarian need and giving them a blanket to how do we mobilize and empower these people who are coming back across so they can actually be part of the development of Chad. Right, so that's the way I want to reframe this. Where do we wanna go? And then whether it's in humanitarian response, whether it's in the planning and understanding displacement factors, or whether it's then very proactively identifying pathways for migration then that unlock human potential and human development. Keeping that in mind, despite the, there's a phrase one of my good friends uses, despite the ankle biting that's happening, despite the negative headlines, despite the um, emergency that we're facing. And so that then when we're reacting, what we're doing is ultimately another brick in the road toward the outcome.
0: Thank you so much. I'll come back to you on some questions on, on migration and leadership. Uh, but I don't, Accenture is a really, really important partner in Tandem, and for a reason, because we felt that to help the humanitarian leaders, the development leaders, we also want to learn from the private sector. And so we you know, we really want to, to hear some of the specific traits that the private sector thinks are important for leaders and how we can use them for our, um, our humanitarian development leaders.
5: Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me. The comments already have been amazing, and I think it's great to have some corporate uh, representation here, because as we'll talk about, there's a role that we can play individually, and I think particularly powerfully collectively. Um, but what's interesting is the remarks reflect—you hit about every point that I would have said if I was to go first. So Accenture actually and WeF did some work together on what are the traits of responsible uh, modern, modern responsible leaders. I mean, just to paraphrase, mission, which we heard, uh, an inclusive mindset, because the number of stakeholders that have to be. Uh, addressed and learned from is greater than than ever, from employees to, to, if you're a public company, shareholders to to others. Learning, listening and learning. I think we live in an era where things are changing so fast with technology and otherwise that having a learning mindset is essential. Not just for leaders, by the way, but at Accenture anyway, that's throughout the company is something we try to inculcate. Empathy um, and um, stay responsible, uh, responsible innovation right um so I think we heard that all in different ways from from the group I'll also say and, and Toronto and I were talking a bit about this before the point about being able to have difficult conversations very important I would say especially with recent events we've that's been something that we've been um struggling with I mean we have a very truly truly human culture as we say and and we work very hard to 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 um cultivate that at our company which I should have said at the beginning accenture is about almost 800,000 people globally, so we're kind of a small country with, within ourselves, with very diverse views, diverse everything, um, which it makes it a wonderful place, but we experience internally everything that would play out around the world basically in a microcosm. So that's been challenging uh, different periods and I think right now in particular. So that's something we're trying to, we haven't quite solved exactly how you do that, but encouraging uh, open dialogue with respect is really important. So everything I've heard so far as I think really encompasses what it, what it means.
0: Thanks. Uh, fantastic to see that there is some validation also in the corporate sector. I just have a quick follow-up question for, for each of you. Uh, uh, Mark, uh, this is you know, defined as the age of, of polycrisis. You lead a very important philanthropy in uh, um, in this context. What are some of the most difficult trade-offs you've had to make?
2: Well, I mean, I think an obvious one, given the sort of human rights dimension of, of some of this conversation, is the sort of, the challenge to traditional human rights, Tirana and I have discussed this a lot and we find Human Rights Watch and OSF are pursuing a very similar strategic journey. In fact, I even read Tirana's uh, objectives to my board and pretended they were mine until, <laughs> until they'd all affirmed how brilliant it was. And then I said, actually, I've stolen them from HRW. But to make a point, which was you know, just how, the old model of naming and shaming on human rights and the focus on political and civil versus economic and social just didn't do justice to the nature of this crisis with, you know, where the old sort of north-south hierarchies of power are gone uh, and where you know people are looking at so many issues through the lens of theirs and their families economic security and well-being rather than through the abstracts of something like human rights you know as an abstract principle to determine your support or not for your government etc so to sort of move how we operate to understand that The model has totally changed uh, and that we've got to find lobby new new kinds of constituencies that we'd ignored in the past around new kinds of issues. You know, it's been really difficult because, you know, both Human Rights Watch and OSF, you know, were enormous successes of that old model you know i mean we rode to power or influence on the back of the fall of the berlin wall or end of apartheid in south africa and a simple world where we could say we can strengthen civil society and get governments to to just pass simple you know human rights legislation then civil society will hold governments to account by the ballot box you know, and that model simply doesn't work for all sorts of reasons too complicated to go into now. But in that, you know, in that context, forcing not just oneself, but all of one's colleagues to totally rethink how we deliver our mission, you know, is is challenging, but necessary. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um... Tirana, you've just published the the World Report 2024. And one thing that struck me is that you really highlighted the double standards, you know, the selective outrage I think you call it, that we've seen from our leaders in recent times. And, of course, the Gaza crisis is on the minds of everyone. What do we need to demand a better response from our leaders? So, you know,
3: what the the double standards is the most obvious part because that is when governments are actually public. You know, so that's when you actually can see it. Um, I think that where we need to stop and what enables the double standards to to perpetuate is something that we refer to as uh, transactional diplomacy. And I think that transactional diplomacy is unfortunately one of the trends that we have seen picking up globally there's not a single region in the world and what transactional diplomacy actually means is that governments are choosing to ignore human rights that are happening when they happening with a potential partner um, that they need to uh, to advance their own sort of domestic agenda and i mean actually migration is a key example of that you know, here we are. We find ourselves, and we see multiple examples. Um, and let's just take the EU for one. The EU migration deals, instead of addressing the the you know backsliding of human rights that we have seen in Tunisia, the outright repression that we see in Egypt, the significant the litany of human rights abuses, including you know torture and mistreatment of migrants and refugees. Um, in places like Libya, instead of the European Union addressing the human rights concerns there, they they turn a blind eye so that they can actually develop partnerships and contracts to ensure that these countries will hold migrants uh, and asylum seekers back so that they don't enter the European bloc. And that is simply just an enabling environment for rights-abusing governments. So when you think about what can you do differently It's very easy. Principled approaches. These are international standards. When it comes to human rights, these aren't nice to have. These are international obligations. And so we need to be holding all governments to the same standards. Because if you don't, it simply emboldens rights. When we see backsliding, if we ignore that, what comes after that is attacks on institutions, the institutions that we rely on, the courts and independent media, for example. Um, you know, they attack the institutions we rely on to create open and free societies. So creating, um, so ensuring that we're holding all governments to the same standards, we're not creating carve-outs, um, that governments are not allowing carve-outs and free passes just to allow advancement of their own agendas. And also I think that there's a role to play from everyone. And that is you have to make the cost of human rights abuses higher. You can do that through, you know, um, through, uh, speaking out, uh, the, I think that corporates have a role to play here. Um, you know, ensuring that there is human rights at the center, um, of your operations. And of course, I think, you know, making sure that, um, the consistent application of rights and that there is accountability when there are rights um, abuses um, is going to be key. Thanks. You
0: mentioned migration and you know, particularly in, in terms of the countries of origin, but you said something else about the human potential that is unlocked with migration uh, that is really difficult to get leaders to accept. How are we gonna help them reframe the debate around migration?
4: So, first of all, it's probably not us who will do it, right? I mean, um, as good as we all are, and we are, right? Um, we are not the ones who are going to change their minds. And it's why, for example, I'm here for this, this week because I see the power of changing the narrative actually in groups like the private sector because it's the private sector who benefits when migration works well. It's the private se- sector that creates the jobs. It's the private sector that needs a sustainable workforce and the private sector that needs continued innovation right and so i think i'm i'm betting that the private sector is going to be the more effective advocate for migration as a tool for development than any of us who say yeah governments you really should do a better job because that's that's the the uh, right thing to do right i'm appealing to economic self interest so so we start there um the second is is the communications about this um we As the International Organization for Migration, I believe have a responsibility to communicate how and why and where migration can work. I think in the past, we've fallen into the trap of communicating only about the disasters, communicating only about people who died in boats crossing the Mediterranean or the channel or showing up on the border. And this is not to take away from the value of the lives that were lost and it is not to normalize the death Um, or harm that is happening to people on the move, but it's to move away from that narrative that migration is only about death and destruction and loss and really look for the examples of where it's actually driving tremendous human outcomes in in capitals and countries and small towns All around the world. Right. Um, And not just in again, not just in Europe, but also in Europe. Right. Um, I think the other thing is really embracing technology. I mean, this is the Davos of AI, by the way, I think it's also the Davos of the polycrisis because I keep hearing this word being repeated over and over again, but um, And then someone said we need polyamory to respond to the poly crisis. So, <laughs> But, <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. But I think um, we need to be embracing AI, for example, as a tool to help us solve and address the problem. So again, sticking with migration, the way we work is when we, um, the way I think this will work is when we can connect people who are looking for opportunities and the skills that they have with the opportunities that exist. Now, that's really hard to do if we're just relying on researchers and econ- uh, economists and, um, you know, sort of old They're ways. Wrong of with working. them, of course. Yeah, <laughs> all of that is necessary. But I think the game changer will be when we use AI to help us do this faster and help us do it in real time so we can help create... Um, more real time, real time opportunities. And then finally, last thing, it's all about the, it's the partnerships, um, right? You know, we can be the best IOM in the world. I think we're pretty good at what we do, but um, it's not going to be us alone. It's going to be engaging with all of you. It will be engaging with governments, engaging with mayors, engaging community leaders, and of course the migrants themselves.
0: Absolutely, and it's interesting when we were um, advertising the event online. Um, um, a colleague, you know, sort of commented, "Well, if it is the age of the poly crisis, it didn't say, you know, polyamory, but he said, you know, what we what we need is." collective leadership. So how we, you know, sort of really engineer these partnerships that can bring collective leadership. Um, so, Amy talks about, you know, the importance of the corporates. We've seen this year, this this week, we've seen the Edelman Trust Barometer, we'll hear, you know, more about it in a second. It found that businesses are the only institution that is seen as competent and ethical. Big responsibility. So how can businesses use this position to drive collective action?
5: Great question and a lot to unpack and respond to, actually, in the last comments. I guess to put in context a little bit that idea of like cre- reduction in credibility of governments in particular, I was reading an article that talked about, I tried to explain uh, the geopolitical tensions that we're having, and they cited sort of the structural issues, and I think they're relevant, because one was that the, the governments or the institutions, so, some of them that we would t- traditionally have relied on, no longer reflect the balance of power in the world, the global south rising, China, et cetera, right? And the issues they're being asked to address climate technology are ones that they don't have any basis of, of t- to build on. So they're kind of building from scratch and together there's a lot of tension there. So I think that it gets to the point of needing a more inclusive approach to all this, all these issues. But, um, you know, leaders of businesses have a lot, it's, it, it is a challenge, right? Because you have to do a lot of things at once. You have to run a business, just obviously you have to look for growth in an environment where it's not where there there are challenges to that and then you have to try to address these social and economic issues i think the point um that amy was sort of getting at is if you can align your mission with some of these efforts because it has to work all around especially for public companies you have shareholder obligations and all that stuff but there are issues and i'll give a couple examples that are very much in in uh in line with those objectives but are also for the for the better good of of the world and some of these issues so um let's see i'll do my migration first so the the um rco and and the ceo from google brought together a bunch of other ceos in the us to form something called welcome us welcome.us which is essentially to work with the us government to help with private resettlement of refugees it started with afghan and ukrainians now it's expanded um and the power in that that's why i said the collective power is quite amazing because they um not just for visibility and 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 accelerating uh, efforts, but what they can tangibly bring to the effort, right? A diverse group of companies, MasterCard's part of that as well, um, is quite remarkable. And so that's been a good example of it was, the was CEO leadership, support from the government, but it was, a, it was a private sector idea to bring this together and work with government uh, to to provide things that government, frankly, can't or can't do fast enough. So that was one, I think, really positive example. And then to bring it to AI, um, I think it's super relevant. We are doing uh, a lot with our uh, our clients, and our clients are all sort of big companies right so it's an interesting perspective but we do a lot around ai and and we're doing and i personally am doing a lot with ai governance and how to take it forward on a global basis and, and we we uh, actually I think yesterday wef announced a report that we helped uh, contribute to on uh global governance for ai and one of the themes is the need to have it be an inclusive uh group there's a real risk and that's why i think wef has a uh, good position here that that things get decided sort of at the G7 or even the G20, right? And of course, there's stuff to learn from all those institutions, but, you know, and the UN is in the game as well, which is terrific, but they don't get the same private sector input, right? So you need this government, civil society, academia, and corporate in a diverse uh, way to really have this be a sustainable, whatever we just, where we land on this stuff for it to be sustainable and not exacerbate problems. So those are just two examples where I think uh, companies driving and insisting on Uh, certain frameworks can be really helpful.